Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Story Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I am one of your hosts. My name is Harris the Third, and I'm here with Sammy Harvey, uh, my usual co-host. And I'm so excited that Sammy's here today because she just informed me uh, that the succulent that is sitting on the table that we are gathered around right now, recording this podcast, is what would you what would you say? It's, it's dying. It's not really dying. You said it's. It's on its, its way to it's dying. Re- <laughs> <laughs> what what are you what were you gonna say? You you said it was growing tall because it's reaching for its last Yes. So I went to a floral <laughs> class a couple weeks ago here in East Nashville at the flower shop. Okay. And um we were making floral arrangements, but a person in the class asked about succulent care. And um she the instructor said that Succulents need to be in really bright spots like in your window seal or on your back porch or something mm-hmm. like that. They don't need a lot of water. They don't need a lot of attention. They actually thrive with no attention. But you just have to make sure that they're in the sun. Otherwise, if they're not in the sun, they're going to start looking like they're growing. Like they're going to look like they're going really tall, like reaching really far. And you're like, whoa, this succulent is doing so good. I'm amazing. <laughs> it's awesome. And then next week, before you know it, it's just going to like be laying over dead because succulents do this as kind of their last reach for sunlight. So it's like they're reaching they use all of their energy to get up <laughs> and then they just fall over dead. So does it have hope? <laughs> Um, yeah, like I think because it's reaching for its last. Yeah, I think I'm going to set it in that window over there whenever we're done. Okay. <laughs> I give you permission to do Thank that. You. Please do. <laughs> now I know. See, folks, you heard it here. This show is not just inspirational. It is also very educational. Educational plant care. And That's if, why I'm here. And I, I mean, we're a community of creative storytellers, which means they all love succulents, right? Yeah. That's like the it's thing great right aesthetic now. aesthetic right apparently. now. <laughs> 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 I'm saying this as if I know about like what the latest trends are in plant culture. Oh my gosh, stop. This place, this office is so cool. If you're not ever because in, of me, it's not really. what I'm doing. Who did it? Uh Kellen, your wife? Uh Kellen, my wife. Now people are gonna be confused. Kellen is Who not his it? wife. <laughs> Kellen or your wife. <laughs> Kellen uh, and your wife. I think they both they both played a role. Uh, Kate's like really good with stuff like that. And Kellen's really great with it too. So I think they both kind of came in and then like yeah let's make this place awesome it's a really cool office if you're ever in nashville and you want to see the story office you should come and see it speaking of someone who knows how to make spaces look cool yeah really cool works for visioneering and that's what they do they design awesome spaces which i think is so interesting i love that you brought him to story gathering this year because i feel like that is something that not a lot of people think about as storytelling Mm -hmm. it's but it's very interesting, and I love his take on it. Everything is telling a story, right? Absolutely. Like, I mean, the the, the like the type of phone that I'm holding. I'm, I just picked up my iPhone. The type of phone I'm holding in my hand, the type of case that I have it in, it's all telling a story. That's why all this branding stuff works, right? That's sure. why branding is so powerful because in many ways, like I'm telling a story to you about who I want to project myself to be. Totally. It's not always you can incredibly dress healthy. Ways, right? like to make people think certain things about you. Totally. Yeah. But if everything is telling a story, it does like it's not a stretch at all that spaces are obviously telling a story. Uh, and that's what I love about Steven and all of his friends at Visioneering. They they get that very much. Um, so I'm excited for you guys to hear this interview. Uh, he was one of our speakers at Story. Very, very, very high reviewed. He was another one of the favorites at Story this year. 
Um, and I cried in this interview. Um, I don't know if you, you'll be able to hear it across the mic or not, but, uh, you know, uh, he's telling me a story and he gets pretty emotional and, um, you know, I'm like a new dad within the last few years. And so then I start getting emotional and I try to lean away from my mic. So you couldn't hear me. It's like sniffing, wiping the tears out of my eyes, but I am, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. This is an interview with Steven Chaparro. I love saying his name. I wish I could roll my tongue. Can you say it? <laughs> I don't think so. No. Give it a shot. I'm going to let <laughs> oh you intro him. Steven Chaparro. Nope. Nope. Neither one of nope. us can do it. Can't do it. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> let him handle that. Enjoy this one with uh, Steven. What a great guy. <laughs> Guys, I'm so excited to be sitting down with my friend, Stephen Chaparro, and uh, I'm going to let him just open by telling me, I just asked you the correct, correct pronunciation of your last name in actual Spanish. In and Spanish, it's, yeah. And so how do you say it? In Spanish, it's Chaparro. Chaparro. I, I can't even do it. See, I just tried to <laughs> coffee and I can't even do it. How do we do that roll thing with your tongue? I, I don't know. Don't. Just when you, when you grow up in a Hispanic family, it just comes naturally. I mean, my wife... Is Hispanic, but she doesn't speak Spanish, but she still has it down. Oh, man, I love it. It's such a beautiful language, and it's, there's a reason why it's one of the love languages, right? Because it's just such a beautiful language, especially when when someone speaks it eloquently with passion. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's even different accents within Spanish, you know, just oh, like sure. Valenzuelan uh, Spanish is just beautiful. Really? Yeah. So, so even among Spanish-speaking people, there are certain dialects, I guess, or accents that even they think is more beautiful? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, say folks from Venezuela, when they speak Spanish, you can immediately detect it. There's a tonality to it, a certain mm-hmm. richness, and even folks, like, say, from Mexico City have a certain way of speaking Spanish that when you hear their children speak in Spanish, it's just a beautiful thing. Really? Yeah. Is there, is there any, like, in America we have what we would call hicks or rednecks with sure. a super draw? Well, is there, like, an, a, is there an equivalent? So, I mean, there's even, diff, like, say, in Texas, there's the Tex-Mex, which is very much a Spanglish, <laughs> uh, where you'll, you literally, in the same sentence, they'll use some words in English, some words in Spanish, and then there's voice inflections, um, you know, there's probably, you know, in, in, in sort of Hispanic or at least Mexican culture, Mexican-American, there's this uh, word called pocho, which means that you're of Mexican or Hispanic descent, but you don't speak Spanish well, so you almost speak it in a broken Spanish. And so you're called pocho, which is kind of like, uh, I'm not going to use any sort of derogatory term <laughs> equivalents, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there there are ways that Dude, even... I had no idea. I, I honestly, this is going to show how ignorant I am on some subjects, but I, I thought Spanglish was like this term that we used for Americans who add just the word O to the end of English, where oh, it's like, I've like, never seen come it help that way. O, me, Caro, or yeah, something. Yeah, no, I, Spanglish for me is like, you know, my mother grew up in South Texas in the valley that they call it, so... There was a lot of Tex-Mex, Corpus Christi. I'm probably going to get in trouble with those that are actually from the area. <laughs> but there's a lot of Spanglish. Well, you, you actually speak in Spanish certain words in the same, like, like I said, literally in the same sentence. You'll use some words in English, some words in Spanish. And then sometimes you'll actually, like what you're saying is, 
you won't do the O at the end of the word, but you will, in a sense, um, uh, Englishize a Spanish word. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So your talk at Story 2016 was amazing. Uh, and I remember, I remember laughing backstage because I, I introduced you. Um, and then, like, as I was trying to get to the TV to watch you in the green room so I could hear your talk. I overheard the joke that you made when you opened up and it was something about you're here to represent the... Uh... Yeah, I, I said, this is a welcome to the, to the Latino portion of the show. <laughs> I remember chuckling like as I was walking back to the green room. That's hilarious. Actually, I, I was really surprised to see sort of the reaction that it got. I got I had like literally four or five Hispanics afterwards that... We're like, you know, just, yeah, yeah you represent it. Represent it, represent it. Did they speak Spanish to you? Or they just no, they, they just were happy to have, you know, yeah, representation. representation. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, that's one of our goals for Story Next Year is to continue to make it more and more diverse. And so, man, I, I love that you were up on the platform this year. Uh, for those who weren't there, let's let's uh, back up just a little bit and go back to some of the beginning of your story. We already heard that you were... You grew up in Texas, right? So actually, my mom grew up in Texas. Uh, she was the daughter of a migrant family. Okay. Uh, migrated back and forth from Texas to Michigan. Okay. Uh, they settled in Michigan. So when my parents, they actually met in college, Bible college, and then moved back to Michigan to go serve. And so I was born in Chicago, but was raised in Michigan. Okay. Yeah. And they were originally from where? So my, my mom was born in Texas, raised in Michigan. My dad was born and raised in New Mexico. Okay. So I heard migrant worker, and that made me think they came from another country. But no. they were actually traveling from he, Texas to right, Michigan. Right. To so work. they travel back and forth. So, you know, it's kind of like the idea of a, of a migrant versus an immigrant. A migrant is one gotcha. who would migrate from yeah, one sure. part of the country to the other versus an immigrant literally came from a, another country. So... I think from my mom's side, I'm probably about fourth generation, if not fifth okay. generation Mexican-American. Okay. And then my wife would probably have a similar background yes, as well. Yes, you've got some roots here. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And so, uh, you, so you spent part of your time in Michigan, I guess? Yep, up until the age of 15. Okay, and then you moved to? Cal Southern California. So my dad took a job out in Southern California. And by that time, his family had moved from New Mexico to California. So he was... It was like, you know, it was not only where Disney, Disneyland is, but it was, in a sense, Mecca for, uh, for a kid to come and live. So to come and live in Southern California was a dream. That, I was, uh, that was, you know, late 80s, 1989, and I was a huge Detroit Piston fan. That was the heyday of the bad boy era with the Lakers. <laughs> and, and so I, I was happy to sport my Piston colors, but that was not a good time to do that. Yeah. So you were there every game, courtside seats. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're in Long Beach? Long Beach, yeah. California, yeah. Which you love, right? I love it. We it, It'll be almost three years. We lived in what is called the Inland Empire uh, for basically when we moved to California, it was an Inland Empire, which is San Bernardino, Riverside Counties. So went to high school, lived there up until... Um, literally about three years ago. So when my wife and I got married, we moved there together. And then, but you know, that was uh, probably about 25 years of living in suburban Inland Empire. And uh, man, I was so glad to move to Long Beach, which is more, at least the neighborhood that we live in, is more of an urban context that uh, I realized that I had such a desire to live in a space like that because it reminded me of 
the small town that I grew up in, in Michigan, Holland, Michigan, that was in the middle of this historic neighborhood, you know, Victorian houses. Yeah, it's beautiful. Holland is beautiful, but it's it's definitely very different than Long Beach. Very man. different. Very Long different. Beach is this like vibrant, creative, expressive community, yeah. and they, uh, yeah, I I love Long Beach too. I love that whole part of the country, but of of the beaches, man, uh, be a tough call. Long Beach, Manhattan Beach, just love that little strip right there. Yeah. It's just gorgeous. Well, you know, in each beach city has its own nuance, like you know. Long Beach is literally has a long stretch of beach along the ocean. It's probably one of the southern facing beaches. But as beaches go, it's not the most beautiful beach. Um, it's probably more of an industrial because there's ports there. Mm-hmm. Navy ships would come in. Um, but it, it's great to say that you live two blocks from the beach. Oh, for sure. For sure. So you uh, now you're a visioneering. Visioneering. Uh, an amazing company. They've been an incredible partner to Story. Um, tell me about how you ended up at Visioneering. What was that story? Yeah, that is a story. I mean, I, I, I think, I, I mean, almost in one case, one thing has nothing to do with the second, but I'll go back to 1999 okay. when um, I read a book called Visioneering by Andy Stanley. Okay. And it really was a formative book that helped me really think through, you know, in essence, how do you draft the blueprint for a, to have a vision for your personal life? So fast forward, literally about 15 years later, I was I had just decided to leave um, a national real estate developer that I had been with for eight years. I felt like I was it was time for me to move on. Were you playing a creative role for that company? It was actually more of of a of a business uh, profit and loss role. So it was creative. I had started after college. I had gone into architecture. Was a project designer and a project manager for about five to six years, and then really wanted to expand what I would call architecture for me is all about designing forms, buildings, and the space inside those buildings. I really wanted to expand that experience to just go beyond the four walls of buildings and understand how do you create communities. Um, Even in college, I remember that my thesis project, I was having a real hard time you know, understanding the detail of how I needed to express the project. And my professor told me, says, Steve, this is not an architecture design problem that you're trying to solve here. You're really trying to solve an urban design, which is really how do different parts of the city work together. And actually, I reflect back on that and actually has a lot of resonance with my perspective today. So I went into architecture but wanted to understand how do you do master plan community. So I went to work for a national home builder for eight years. And then the market tanked, mm-hmm. you know, from 2005 to 2010. It was a real rough time for real estate. But um, in 2010, I started to see where the market was going, and I really felt like I needed to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. So I left the firm with, uh, without any backup plan. You know, I, I was kind of naive i don't know if night well maybe naive uh, is is the right term but i i really felt a little bit more confident in my abilities in my what i call transferable skills are you, are you, are you married at that point yeah and so yeah. your wife is just like yeah go honey jump ship uh she, she was hesitant and and i come to find later that i probably was very persuasive <laughs> in making this leap and i and i won't say that it was the wrong decision but i didn't understand sure. the implications of just launching out with really nothing 
nothing, no plan, no plan B. And I just felt like all of the things I had done up to that point had given me skills that were transferable to any different industry. It really took me a year and a half to find a full-time job at half wow. the pay that I was making before. But I, so in this reinvention, I actually became a licensed financial advisor. And, and people would say, what in the world? You know, you went from architecture that you went to school for, you actually were in the field, now you're doing financial advisory. And I kind of recast it to myself and I said, well, what I am doing is, is I'm doing financial architecture. I'm doing blueprints for their financial lives. So that's how I characterize it, but it really taught me a lot about what it means to be an advisor, mm -hmm. to come alongside people, to say, what is your vision for your life? Here's the trajectory that you're going today versus the trajectory that you want to achieve and what's the gap between the two and what can we do to, to draft a plan for you to get there. Wow. And so it really helped me, in a sense, try to envision the future of things and what it takes to come alongside people to help them achieve that vision. Um, that I lasted in that field for about three years just because it just wasn't what I was called to do. Sure. However, it, it really informed me to what I'm doing today. So back to visioneering, in 2011, I found out about visioneering because I really felt like I was going to get back into architecture. But um, I had lost a lot of my skills because I had been out of the industry for 10, 11 years. And so I, I didn't quite fit the bill completely as to what visioneering studios was looking for. But I saw a ton of opportunity and we didn't get, I didn't get the opportunity to, at that time. It wasn't the right time. Uh, so I took another path for another two or three years, and then I got a call uh, about three years later to come and join Visioneering Studios. But it was actually, I look back and realize that even that three years from the first time I talked to Visioneering and when I got hired, that that process actually is what I needed to go through to learn more about myself. Because when I talk about identity, that was what I needed to learn in that three years because sure. I, I saw visioneering as a dream job as opposed to an outflow of my calling. I think it's really cool. I think your perspective is amazing because I think a lot of people, a lot of especially artists and creative people, um, they, they look at these little stints that they do and they're like, like, this is doing nothing for my career as a storyteller, as an artist. You know, and you're a very creative person and yet you spent a few years doing financial advising. Yeah, and yeah. I think most people might be like, ah, I wasted those three years doing this thing that I wasn't really created to do, or you have this really positive mindset and ability to look at that and go, okay, you're right. It wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, but look at these really awesome skill sets that now, even in my creative role, I'm able to leverage and it taught me a lot. And so it wasn't really a waste, even though I wasn't doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Right. And it's really a perspective that has been shaped by a lot of angst, honestly. <laughs> I, I'll be the first one to say that in, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, when one door opens up, we all have heard the saying, another one will, when one door closes, another one will open up. But I, I tend to say that it's sometimes hell in the hallway, hmm. that that journey between A and B is where we find ourselves many times. And I've never lost hope or faith that my destiny will come to pass, but it's just the waiting. It's sometimes what I perceive as regret for making a decision. But in hindsight, you see how all of those seasons in our careers, in our life, has really helped to form and shape not only our skills, but really our perspective. 
Um, so a lot of people, when they talk about my perspective, I'm saying <laughs> it's, it's been born out of a lot of just living life and just learning from those course corrections. I love that phrase, hell in the hallway. I'm like, that's one of those things I'm actually going to, that's going to come out in a lot of future conversations for me. Like I'll be talking to people and they're going to, they're going to describe a season of their life and they're like, yeah, this, this door closed. And then it was like a long time until this other door opened yeah. up and I was like, oh, that was hell in the hallway. Yeah. My friend Steven told me that on the <laughs> podcast one time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one that I, it just, it does resonate for me because totally. I, I feel many times that for me, when I look at some of my counterparts or people that I've grown up with and I start comparing myself to the, the trajectory of their careers and I think, man, you know, you get FOMO, right? Your fear of missing out. Like, mm-hmm. am I losing time? I'm, I'm 42 years old and, and some of the people like yourself and others that are younger have achieved so much in that time frame and, and I allow that to, to, to misguide my perspective about things that are happening. But... You know, there's one actually from that book, Visioneering, he, he said that the time you spent in preparation is probably directly in proportion to the magnitude of your destiny. Hmm. So we'll sometimes... That's a lot, and that's deep. So let's, like, let's say it one more time. So let's see if I can remember what yeah. I said. So <laughs> the, the, the time and duration in which you spent in preparation mm-hmm. is directly proportional to the magnitude of your destiny. So if you have a longer incubation time, it's probably because it needs to incubate long enough because there's this big thing at the end yeah. that you're being prepared for. So if you spend a little bit amount of time preparing for, preparing for something, maybe that vision isn't big enough. So, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism of like, well, let me just look at it this way. I've literally seen it over and over and over in people where they're spending all this time in preparation. And then you notice the whole thing of they, they look like they're overnight successes, but it's like, it's like a 30 year overnight yeah. success, right? It took 30 years to have that overnight success. So I, you know, I was listening to Airbnb. I was listening to other folks that just a lot of these stories, they're huge successes today, but what you don't hear about is that struggle many times, that hell in the hallway. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the startup world, they call it the trough, the trough of, uh, I think, of, of death or something like that. It's that low spot sure. that you kind of go through. I think Seth Godin calls it the dip, right? He yeah, wrote a whole book exactly. on it. There's a lot yeah. of different titles for it, but it's because it's true. That principle is kind of hard to deny. I, I, I certainly resonate with the whole you know, 20 year overnight success kind of yeah. thing. And that used to happen to me a lot. There were a lot of other, um, you know, magicians and illusionists, um, back when I was touring full time, doing 150 shows a year. You know, a lot of these guys were just like, like, who is this guy who did, you know, he's came out of nowhere and he's so busy. Like, how does he have so many bookings? And, um, they were just, I think they were just in awe of how much I was working, um, as if I came out of nowhere. And I'm like, guys, like, I might be 30, but now I'm 33 years old at the time. I was like, I might be 30, but like I've been doing this since I was nine. Yeah. And when I was 14 years old, I might've only done 25 shows, you know, when I was 16, I might've done 50. Like you're missing, you're overlooking this 20 years of just blood, sweat, and tears. I didn't have a childhood. I didn't sure, hang out with yeah. other friends as a teenager. All I did is just practice and practice and perform and perform and tour and tour and tour. So yeah, I think sometimes people, see something and they're like, well, how did they just got there overnight? But I don't know, maybe American Idol did that to us. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that that's part of it. I think uh, I, when we see people that have success, we just don't see all the hard work that goes into it, um, and that happens in every context. Yeah. So you're so at that point in the story. So now you're a visioneering. Give us for those who don't know. Um, give us kind of the the 101 on on visioneering. What do you guys do? Yeah. So visioneering studios was started 14 years ago as a division of essentially a lending institution a 63-year lending institution, and they said, well, we want to do more than just finance our customers. We want to help guide them along the process of developing their projects. So let's develop a department that uh, is led by who uh, our founder, Mel McGowan, who worked at the, the Walt Disney Company. Uh, corporation for about 10 years and there's a lot of lessons and he recruited others so the idea of how do you inject story into space so that space is designed by under uncovering discovering extracting the story of the people place and passions that already exist in the organization so you're not trying to contrive story you're trying to uncover it you're trying to understand it and then release it and give it form so Visionary Studios today is essentially now a family of companies. So Visionary Studios Real Estate, Visionary Studios Architecture, and Visionary and Vision Design Build, which is our construction arm. The idea is that we want to be a developer of vision. We want to be able to give form to inspired vision, give inspired vision reality. And so one of the ways that we do that is by taking the posture of being a trusted steward of story and space. Our idea is to be able to come alongside our clients and partners and help steward that story and make sure that it is given form in in terms of space. So we're a national firm. We actually have about 57 visioneers across the country. We have four studios in Irvine, California, Denver, Nashville, and Charlotte. And then we have people also in Dallas, Boston, and Seattle. Um, So the idea is that we try to be able to come alongside clients to help them develop their vision from the very beginning all the way to the end. Because what happens is if there is a vision or uh, an inspiration that is created on the very front end, the more and more people you hand off that vision to, you can, you're in danger of suffering from what we call vision erosion. So the more and more people you hand it off to, they weren't part of the birthing of that vision. So they don't understand the nuances of why certain design decisions were made. So we've created an entity where we are in the driver's seat from the very beginning, even before a site is acquired, all the way to the point that a project is actually built. I love that, man. Vision erosion. Yeah. That's a really cool phrase. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm thinking of a whole bunch of examples of where I've actually seen that take place, sadly. What's even, you know, even in Disney Disneyland, would you ever see a Rubbermaid trash can at Disneyland? Hmm. You know, that doesn't fit the story. Right. So you have, you know, trash can coverings that are that are 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 decided upon per the story that Disneyland or Disney World are saying. So in a sense, even in the in the film world, there are story editors or continuity editors right. that making sure that when they look at a shot, there's not a soda can, a Coca-Cola can, and an Egyptian movie shot, right? It's making sure, sure all the elements are on story. Sure. So we want to make sure that, you know, whether it's uh, churches that we're working with, nonprofits, or 
commercial properties or co commercial projects that everything is per that story. We say that that story needs to be on point from the ether to the environment, literally from your website, branding, because really a building is an extension of your brand. Sure. It's an extension of your story. So we want to make sure that your facility is telling a story. We say that all facilities, all spaces tell a story. It just may not be the one that you want to tell. Yeah. So I'm curious when you go in, do you guys get called by a lot of people when you go in for the first meeting that a lot of that is just an education yeah. on the fact that they're telling a story? Yeah, um, it, it, it is. It is a big part of the initial conversation is really trying to understand their objective. And, and when you're a trusted advisor, mm -hmm. you're not giving people what they want. You give them what they need. And so a lot of times, well, we we don't we don't. So, so, a lot of clients will come to us and say, well, how would you design this space? And our first response is, I don't know. What's your story? What is it about the DNA of your organization? What is it about the DNA of the place? What is the DNA about your passions? We want to we extract all of that to come up with eventually what would become a big idea. That big idea then translates to everything that we do. And so when clients or potential clients come up to us and they say, how would you design it? And we say, we don't know. So then we start asking a ton of questions. But they're like, but we went to these people's building and theirs looked like this and that's what we want. <laughs> it's like a different story. It's a different story. It, well, it's even, uh, it's a different way of working. You know, most clients or potential clients, when we talk to them, it is a ton of re-education of its reframing, it's breaking paradigms, it's even taking them to other spaces that exist either in their locality or when they come and visit us in our office. It's taking them to a space that they wouldn't imagine would ever apply to their space because we do it as a way to break their paradigms. Say, what if, it says, when you look at this space, this park, this farmer's park, let's say, you know, what would your site look like if it became a branded site? that it has a different way of looking at it. And so there's a ton of education. And so many times our initial recommendations are very different than what they came to ask us for. It is not that we're pushing our agenda in any way, shape, or form. Sure. In fact, we say that we don't have a style. You won't know necessarily that a project has our fingerprints on it um, because everything is extracted from the questions that we ask. Sure. Is there? I'm curious if there's a common problem that you see so when you go in and and you're in that exploration process and they have their mindset on this thing that they saw somewhere and they want that for their project what what is it that that is making them latch on to something mentally and emotionally you know it's it's an idea that we call that uh the places that they love there's something about it, and usually it's, it's, it's the idea that that space brings together people, that people love to be there. There's this, even this uh, sociology, sociology concept of first place, second place, and third place. The first place is where you live. Second place is where you work. And the third place is that place where you desire to connect with people in between home and work. So for many people, that's the watering hole of old. It could be a bar, it could be a coffee shop, it could be Disneyland. It's wherever people choose to connect together. So we, we kind of use the term that it's a people magnet, not just for someone to just 
hang out themselves as an individual, but where do they desire to connect with people? So a lot of times we say that those people magnets is usually when you combine story with space. If those two are connected to each other, that there's an intentionality of bringing those two things together, it's usually a place that people love to hang out. So a lot of times those types of spaces give people a visual or a spatial language to something that they're feeling inside. Even though it may be the wrong expression for their context, they're saying there's something about that that resonates with me. I want that resonance in my space. So all we do is we find out within how would that be expressed in a way that's applicable to your story. So this is why he who builds the coolest bar doesn't necessarily win because you know, every town has a cheers bar where right. everyone's like, I don't want to go to that fancy place that looks cool on the inside. Like, I want to go where my people are. Yeah. I guess it just kind of proves that what you're talking about is true. Absolutely. So sometimes it's not about, you know, how vibey or awesome the space is, though I guess obviously any talented designer or architecture firm could do that. Right. But more importantly is what, what story is it telling and how is it providing a context for people to connect with each other and have community? Well, even in, in sort of the coffee house culture, coffee mm-hmm. culture today. That's a great example. So if you look at even, you know, we talk about the parable of the bean where, you know, you get from the raw bean on the farm and how much would it cost to harvest a, a bean or a, a handful of beans and then actually go throughout the whole process to make a cup of coffee. Well, then you talk about, um, you know, buying coffee at 7-Eleven or buying coffee at Starbucks. So Starbucks is kind of known as second wave coffee. The reason why people were really attracted to Starbucks when it you know, kind of had its heyday five to 10 years ago is because it did provide that third place, a place that people could go and work, that you have, you know, how many meetings have people had at oh, a Starbucks? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they'd pay for you know, a $5 Frappuccino you know, we, you could argue whether it was actually the taste of it or is it just the lifestyle? I almost feel like Starbucks, Starbucks is more of a lifestyle brand than it is a coffee brand. They love the idea of Starbucks. But now with third wave coffee, because, you know, coffee at Starbucks, you know, if you're a coffee snob, you're not going to necessarily like coffee at Starbucks. Are you a coffee snob? I would say yes, that I don't like Starbucks. I just went to Barista Parlor today after we met, and I got a a box of of beans and about keeled over when I saw the price of it when I actually checked out. (laughs) So it's, but yes, I I, I do like pullover coffees. I do like it black. I do like floral tasting Uh uh, coffee. But a lot of those independent shops that roast their own beans, it's more about not it's not just the environment but it's the environment it's sort of you have the independent coffee culture you know shop independent so there's it's it's the next level of coffee culture where it's the artisan it is interesting man i'm not i'm 33 i've said that a few times but i i don't think i remember the world without starbucks part of it was because i grew up in a small town that didn't really have a coffee shop and i think by the time i was out and about, I was, Starbucks already existed. So like, where did people go if it wasn't a breakfast or lunch meeting and they didn't have an office space? Yeah. I don't know what the equivalent say, but I mean, I was introduced to It's Starbucks. obvious that there was a void that needed to be filled in Ab- the absolutely. coffee shop thing. I mean, it's of. something that, you know, that, 
Howard Schultz that saw he had experienced in the coffee houses in Europe and wanted to bring that idea of coffee culture back to America. And, and it worked well, and Starbucks has you know, been very successful, but now with third wave coffee, you know, Starbucks is seen as the corporate equivalent of coffee culture. Sure. So the independent shops are very organic, mm-hmm. are very, um, very localized in telling any, even the story of their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, it, um, and so even Starbucks has had to re-strategize, like what can we do to make the local Starbucks almost look like it's an independent coffee shop? So with, you know, Starbucks Reserve, you know, the way they prepare that type of coffee versus sure. the normal coffee, it all plays into wanting to appeal to the millennial generation that is a little bit more independent focused. But that space, Starbucks space versus barista parlor, for instance, it's a total different uh, different idea of how do you think of those two things. Yeah, I love that. There's, there's, so much, there's so much to learn here, I think, from you and from visioneering and what you guys are doing because it applies to all of us, whether we are in the business of creating spaces for other people, which obviously I'm not, um, but the fact that every space tells a story and I'm always living in a space, I'm always working in a space, and, um, you know, it's, I don't think I'm the exception to this rule, and within, at least within the creative community. I, my brain sometimes can't function if something about the space doesn't feel right. Yeah. Like what is that that I'm experiencing? So like I'll give you an example. I, um, now we have this office space that we're recording in right now. Um, you know, I used to have a home office and our, my wife recently turned my home office into a playroom for our kids. Cause my kids are old enough now and they wanted to have their own space to paint and write and stuff. It's just a little small room. Um, and all the boxes ended up over here at the office this weekend while I was out of town and I came in and, it's like I couldn't even sit down and answer my email because that stack of boxes was sitting right in front of my desk right. and it was bugging me. And it's just like, I got to get rid of this distraction, get out of the way, I can't function. Like space is that important to the work that we do and our productivity and our creativity as well. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite quotes comes from Winston Churchill. You know, it kind of, he is not, he's not somebody that you would think of that would reflect on this idea of space no. and design. So he, he, he says... Um, he says, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. So when you talk about the idea of our environments, our spaces shaping us, it's a way that our environments, in a sense, can shape culture. The way we interact with people, the way we interact with our work, the way we interact with nature. So I like to Talk, I like to think about the idea of cultural architecture. So that is where environments can help to create culture, meaning how do we interact with each other, and culture, meaning the DNA of an organization, uh, sort of the ideology, the values of a company. The culture can also create environments, and that's where we come in saying that we want to make sure that your story is aligned with your space. So in a sense, story is about culture is about how you view life. How do you view your future? How do you view the way you make decisions, your values, your mission, your vision? That's all story. And so if there's a misalignment of your culture with your space, then there's this, I'll use the word concophony, there's this, this dissonance that you know it's not jiving. So if the space reflects your culture, your work habits, your work behaviors, the way you think, then it's, it's kind of like a tuning fork. 
it's like things are in sync. You're on the same frequency. Uh, and different people are going to have different, uh, you know, druthers of the type of space that they want. So again, that druthers or that preference is part of their story. So that's the reason why we say that when we work with corporate companies, corporate um, organizations, uh, there's the importance of workplace design. So if they want to have a culture of collaboration, if they want to have a culture of just ongoing communication, innovation, the spaces that they have have a huge potential to facilitate that. Uh, because if you're more of a corporate environment, just normal offices and cubicles, that facilitation, that co collaboration isn't going to happen because the environment does not jive with the story. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's so true. I like there. I already want to, even this place, it's like sometimes I want to rip the walls down. It's just like, ah, I'm tired of getting up and walking into office to office, right? Because it's yeah. like you just want to rip all the walls down so you yeah. can have a big space. But then I have buddies who work in those kind of spaces. And they often say, like, I've got to go, like, out in the hallway to make a phone call because there's no privacy. And people here, they have to work in headphones all day, you know, because right. other people are right next to them. I mean, even our office, our office has different types of spaces. And so we say that there's no one approach, no single approach that is good for everybody. The open plan, you know, creative offices, excuse me, have the open plan. And, you know, there's a way that... You know, you're going to have the earphones and you're going to have, yeah, it facilitates collaboration, but then you're hearing everyone's conversations on the phone mm -hmm. and things like that. And sometimes that doesn't work. So in the workplace environment, especially creative environments, the idea is to provide different types of spaces. Sometimes you have enclosed offices that are dedicated for people. Sometimes you have enclosed offices that are act as more as hotspots that people can come in and out as they wish, but it's not dedicated to any one person. You can have this open plan, but you could also have phone booths, which is just enough for a person to go in and make a phone call and then step out. Um, so there's different ways. So I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think it's this hybrid of all these different types of spaces that will facilitate you know, the, the mission and culture of an organization. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've grown to appreciate about visioneering is I hear this theme from you over and over and over again, which is there's not the one correct way, or there's not the trend that you should always follow, that it really is different for every single organization, and it depends on the story. Um, obviously, we love stories. We believe that stories are powerful. It's why we do what we do. And it's really cool to see things that most people would not connect with storytelling, like architecture, and realize the very important link between the two. So, man, I got so much respect for what you guys are doing. Uh, for the sake of just some practical nuts and bolts, you know, advice for those listening. Walk us through, kind of give us the the 20,000 foot view of some of your talk that you gave. What were some of the takeaways that you offered attendees this year? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I've realized in my own journey of, of just, you know, trying to find that dream job, trying to discover, you know, the satisfaction that I get from what I'm doing. Um, I've, I've, you know, I'll, I'll use the word angst has been a big part of my story um, because I have felt in many cases that I'm so forward thinking. I'm, I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about the, the things that could happen or the things that should happen. And I envision things that are not th that don't exist today. And so I've always been so forward thinking that I have a hard time enjoying the present. And so I've looked at my jobs that I've had in that same way of like, is my job giving me satisfaction? And I've, I've allowed 
what I am doing to, in a sense, form my sense of identity. Meaning, am I, am, I, am I accelerating up the ladder the way I want to? Am I getting a certain roles in you know, whatever firms that I've been a part of? Am I progressing? And I've allowed my pursuits, uh, the, the product of my pursuits, my accomplishments, to really give me a sense of my own identity. And I've realized in my life and in the lives of most creatives that identity is a really big issue. The sense of identity, a sense of community, and even a sense of having someone that would guide me along as a mentor or a group of people that would mentor me. So I essentially shared the story of my son, Ethan. Um, our, you know, he's a really smart kid, and I kind of just shared you know, some, some, some ways that he's just extremely intelligent. And I remembered one day he came to me, and, um, and he had this look in his eyes that it just... It, it, it struck me because he came running to me with his report card in his hand and he, and he jumped on my lap and he asked this question that really just hit me hard. And it was, Daddy, are you proud of me? Oh, man, I don't, I don't know what it was. And I don't know if it resonated with a question that maybe I've been asking myself. Uh, not that my dad has never not affirmed me. He's like the most affirming guy. But mm-hmm. maybe part of my drive that I have in all these jobs, all of these pursuits that I've had, maybe that has been this question that I've been asking. Maybe it's not my dad, but world, are you proud of me? You know. So this identity is like, well, then I have to do this. I have to do B, C, and D to get words of affirmation so that people's words their affirmation of me began to help, help me feel like I'm doing a good job. And so I just saw that. I saw that, you know, in my son's question. And, and it was like I, I, I took a moment to just, like, stop. It really felt like time stopped for me. And I had this, this moment in time to make a decision. Was I going to affirm him because of his accomplishments, his report cards, and all these things that he's doing well in school? Or am I going to affirm the fact that he is my son and that nothing will change that? Because guess what? We fail. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. We're, we, we fail. We're not going to meet certain expectations here and there. We're, none of us is perfect. There's going to come in a time in his life, and if he's anything like me, there's going to be many times in his life where he's going to fall short and I didn't want him to think that my, his identity as my son would change because of things that he did or didn't do. So I, I it's like time kind of turned back on for me. And I, and I looked at him and I said, Ethan says, I'm proud of you for everything that you do. But do you really know why I'm proud of you? I am proud of you because you're my son. Nothing will ever change that. Um, and then later on in the conversation, my youngest son, Brendan, and he came up to me and said, and Daddy, do you know why I'm proud of you? Man, this gets me every time. He said, Daddy, I'm proud of you because you're my dad. Mm-hmm. It's like full circle, full circle. It's like the identity I was speaking into my son, my own sons were speaking back into me. Yeah. And so... You know, I think about all the things that as a father that I want to provide for my kids, 
You know, I work hard. I travel a lot. And I wish I could buy them a home where we live. You know, I wish I could, you know, pay for, you know, uh, you know, their piano lessons and, and sports. And, and, you know, I've only taken them to Disneyland once because we've made certain sacrifices. Um, and I realized in that one statement, he said, it's not about that stuff. It's about the fact that you're my dad. And, and it made me realize that we as creatives, we put so much emphasis on our art, on the products that we create, and we pursue creating things in such a, in such a powerful way because you know what people say about our art, what people say about our songs, what people say about our paintings, what people say about our writing is like we're, you know, you kind of mentioned American Idol. You see the people on that show, like they're just like so hungry and starving for the affirmation of the judges. And I, I feel like that's like the most tangible expression of how we as artists and as creatives and as storytellers, we yearn for affirmation because we're seeking to have our identity formed by what people say about us or what people think of our art. And when we really come down to it, none of that matters as long as we know who we are. If we know who we are and we know that our identity is solid, then all of those things become an outflow of that. So that's kind of what I shared uh, with, with the group at Story was just understanding our identity of what really matters and that these other things are just expressions, but they're not, they're not, they don't have to be necessarily tied to, to um, you know, our self-worth, self-value. And I just, you know, I've talked to so many creatives that, you know, when someone criticizes their work, it's devastating. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. So, and I, and I, I, I translated some of that to even our work at Visioneering, how we talk about three levels of design, where we talk about the space inside, which is the space inside buildings. We talk about the space in between, in between buildings, and then the space beyond. Um, and we, I translated that over to what do we think inside, the space inside between our two ears. What do we feel about ourselves? You and I are talking across the table, so that space in between us, the space of community, and then the space beyond where we think outside of our context, things that really won't benefit us, but that we're giving to the greater good. And so those are the types of things that I think even design principles of space can inform how we relate to people and the world around us. It's amazing, man. It's really good stuff. It makes me want to, you know, want to dive into that idea even deeper at some point. And just because even hearing you tell that story, you know, I'm sitting across the table tearing up and thinking about my own kids and I'm like why why is it that the art we create specifically for the creative community uh, why why is it the stuff that we do why is it why are we so tied to our work and I think there's just something there's something different about creating art and telling stories because we have a hard time separating that work that we produce from who we are because it is it's almost pouring out of who we are right yeah, it's an expression you're wearing yeah. it on your sleeve yeah which makes the criticism of that so much tougher than you know you're i don't i don't know what the equivalent is like someone who manufactures something that someone else designed it's just like oh i just put these couple of bolts in that place if you don't like it you should go talk to that guy 
you know, it's different when you, you're the guy that had the paintbrush in your hand and you put the paint on the canvas and it's something that you imagined that didn't exist and then you physically created it and painted it and for someone to stand there and go, I don't like it, that's ugly, that hurts because it's an extension of you. And so, man, you're so right. We, we, we so often struggle with that criticism and our identities are all over the map and somehow we've got to do a better job as a community of getting that straight. It's one of the things I love about story. Honestly, I love that this community cares about that sort of thing that, you know, we're not just constantly talking about how do we be more creative? You know, there's, there's so many YouTube videos out there that will take you through step by step of, you know, here's how to do these little things and just the nuts and bolts of making things. But I love that we bring in people like you who take the time to dig deeper and ask some honest questions because who we are and how healthy we are mentally and emotionally and spiritually, like that makes an impact on our work, man. So thank you for speaking into that and just the way that you share it with so many. Um, any, any closing words that, or well, advice, words of inspiration? Well, I think uh, that the creative community is a beautiful community. It's a, it's a beautiful community uh, with all of our faults, with all of our hangups, um, I think some of the greatest art comes through the expression or plowing through some of our pain. Um, and I just really think that this issue of identity is an important one to understand in terms of the space inside our heads, space inside our hearts. But I think what is equally important is what I call the space between, and that is the community that we need to affirm each other. We need to be each other's fans. You know, sometimes in the creative world, we can be so competitive uh, that we think that if someone chose another person over us, that that devalues us as well. But if we're able to actually just be fans of each other and not, I'm not saying to promote each other, but be fans of each other and be happy when they get that job or they get that commission or they get that speaking gig or whatever it is, because what that's doing is it's making the community stronger. If we can't be happy for each other, if we can't come alongside people, we're, you know, we're human beings. We are social beings. We need to, to look out for each other. And I, so I think that that is something that, um, I love it when I see that happening. It doesn't always happen, but when the creative community can come together, and I think that's what story is all about. I mean, to, to know that the vision is not just about an event, about a one-time-a-year conference, but it's really about developing a community of people that are going to be around and see each other at other events, but also, more than anything, be able to be there for each other on other channels, with social media, if it's phone conversations, visiting... Um, that's an awesome thing. So I love being part of that. Yeah, man. We're so glad you're a part of it. Thanks for that. Well, thank you. Hell in the hallway. I love that phrase. I've never heard it before, yeah, but just, it makes so much sense. Yeah, I love the mental picture, right? Because if a door closes, but the next one hasn't opened yet, what do you do? Like I love that, that he put words to that picture. waiting period. Yeah. 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 Hell in the hallway. It's so useful. So I don't know what you do. I guess you start drawing pictures on the walls. You start <laughs> making art. Yeah. Later on, you're going to be like, oh, this is an amazing part of my story. So you're going to get that, that kind of perspective later. But I don't know. What, do you, what would you do if you were trapped in the... I feel the, that way, though. I feel that way a lot of times. Really? I feel like because I'm out of college, I don't 
have like a creative project that I'm working on necessarily. Except the and story podcast. Except I mean, except the story <laughs> podcast. Yeah. And I um I work for my my husband and I work together on his company of telling stories for brands and nonprofits. But besides that, I don't feel like I have like a big vision like from like my calling or is it because you're right now. is it because it's like not your thing is, are oh, you looking for like your thing like with brandon's company yeah i feel like i'm looking for my thing and i felt that way my whole life um but i have a lot of friends right now that i'm talking to that are in their like mid-20s late-20s who kind of feel in a similar place so when you graduate and you have like your degree you feel like you did this thing but then what do you do now like what do you do with this time it's like the first time in my life where I haven't had things planned out for me and it's kind of scary you know Mm -hmm. so I don't know I'm proud of you I think you're (laughs) stepping out and doing some cool stuff thanks I remember when I asked what I don't know what episode we're on now I mean it's in the teens I think finally (laughs) Uh, but we haven't been doing this podcast for very long um, but we're far enough in. I remember back asking you to do this and you're like, I don't know. No. <laughs> you know, and I remember uh, you getting married and then you know, A year like, traveling ago. around the yeah. world. And then now you're like fully embracing it all. And you're like, yeah, I want to go there. Yeah, I'll fly there with you. And, and like I've noticed too, like obviously they are this, some of these trips are because they've hired your husband to tell the story of their brand but like you're starting to embrace some of this role as well and I see you yeah. even sharing some of those stories and like taking some ownership of it and it's really cool I'm excited like, to see where those things you. lead to you. I like being behind the scenes so we've started calling me Brandon's life producer so I like <laughs> actually like make his content sometimes <laughs> like I write for him and stuff That's but awesome. it's fun I like it it's yeah. good I I'm Thank you so much for saying that. I feel scared about everything all the time, but hearing you like come from a different perspective and see that you think that I'm like jumping out and taking risks. I it's see beautiful. it as courageous. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like I don't courageous. feel courageous, but I guess looking back, there's some courageous parts of it. Yeah, for sure. You really put yourself out there. I, I think this podcast is courageous because, like, neither one of us have enough bandwidth in our schedules to sit down and edit these or neither of us know how to do this yeah people are probably probably wondering like how many takes do they sit like it's usually we sit down and hit record (laughs) and we start talking and then we go we totally could have done that way better but let's just let it be raw and it is what it is yeah yeah Yeah. what was the other thing that steven said did you make a note about that he had this amazing quote about how our like he talked a little about momentum right Mag- or magnitude? Yes. Yes. Okay, I'll read that one too. Yeah, I took some notes during okay, this. Okay, awesome. And he talked about the time and duration you prep is proportional to the magnitude of your destiny, which was talking about the idea that you're sitting in this waiting period, waiting for something to happen. You're sitting with all this pressure is going to turn out into something wonderful one day. You just got to use those skills while yeah. like while you're in the waiting. Yeah. So good. I had I I remember that now because I just taught me like, okay, say that one more time because there's some depth in that. Yeah. Yeah. So hit the hit the little 15 second back or 30 second back <laughs> button on your podcast app, uh, and listen to that one a couple times until it sinks in. That's deep. And then of course he got me with this whole story with his sons. Um, mm. You know, my 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 firstborn completely rocked my world and changed my life. My daughter has too, but um, it's different the first time you become a father. It's sure. such a new experience. Yeah. And so. 
I listened to him tell that story like wrecked me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced it even tonight. Uh, we're recording at night again. This seems to be a common thing. I think we're doing quite a bit of night recording. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's kind of just it's when we for can squeeze schedule. it in and make yeah. it happen. Coming back into the office late. Uh, and I, I put my son Jude to bed tonight. Um, and he's, he had like a rough day today. He just, he's three. And so you remind yourself of like, Hey, he's three. He's completely irrational and illogical. Uh, but I remember he just wasn't getting it. Um, but I tell him all the time, I was like, baby, buddy, you make me so happy. And tonight I think he knew as I put him down cause he got in trouble a lot. And he was, he was like, uh, daddy, you make me so happy because he was like, <laughs> in a way he was trying to like manipulate me into telling him because he wanted, oh, that's funny. he wanted to hear he that everything was still okay. Yeah. Like, um, and I was like, buddy, you, you do make me really happy. I just need you to be a better listener. He's like, okay, tomorrow I'll be a good listener. I'm ready to listen. I'll make you really happy. And I was like, ah, so oh I totally get gosh. it. There's, there's just certain things and some perspectives that you will learn about life and wisdom and not just storytelling, but living a great story yourself. I think after you become Mm -hmm. a parent, just so much perspective gleaned because you've learned all these things about yourself. And so, man, thanks to Steven for sharing, being willing to share that moment with us and with the story community and, um, gosh, Mm -hmm. so good. One more thing I want to talk about. Sure, I yeah. loved um, when he was talking about vision erosion. That was uh, a new yes. concept. Like, I like the phrasing of that because I've thought about this for a long time and I feel like I've read other writers talk about this too. This idea of not giving your vision to the correct people can cause harm to your idea. By talking about it before your idea is ready to be birthed and like be out in the world or talking about it with people who don't respect your idea or don't see um, where it's coming from or don't have the same care of care of the idea as you do can be really dangerous and can cause you to think differently yes. about it too. Yes. That was a, that's a powerful point. The idea of idea erosion and just protecting that, you know, I we're, we're so new in this season of story, like, I remember when he said that, I was like, okay, I've got to take a mental note because mm. like, this is the kind of stuff that we have to be watching out for a year, five years down the road. Right. Totally. Um, that's such a good interview. Such a good interview. I'm, I'm so thankful that Steve was willing to be on the podcast. Um, and he works for an amazing company, visioneering, not just an amazing company full of talented people, but, um, just a great partner for story. They've been so supportive of us, spreading the word, supporting all the things we're doing, not just the conference, but, um, literally year round from the podcast to all the new projects we're working on workshops and the annual conference. Um, so they were a huge supporter. They made story 2016 possible. Um, and they're going to be playing a huge role in making story 2017 possible. So thank you visioneering. Thank you, Steven. Mm-hmm. Uh, be sure you keep up with Steven online. Um, you can check out visioneering's website. They're an incredible company as we keep saying over and over and over again. And then Stephen also has a personal website. It's just stephenachaparro.com. So check that out. He's also Stephen A. Chaparro on social media. So follow along. I like his tweets. He's got (laughs) so much great content that he cranks out on Twitter. Always always really fascinating articles. I'm like, how did you find that? (laughs) So what a wise guy. Thank you, Stephen, for being on the show. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Sammy, for showing up late again to record another one of these episodes. I'm so appreciative to you for 
your courage to be on this show. I'm thankful for your willingness to jump on stage with me a few times this story. And I'm thankful for you to teach me how to keep succulents alive. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm always honored. Keep it out of the darkness and in the light. In the light. Keep it in the light, That's people. how we all stay alive. Yep, it's true. There's your bit of wisdom. Can't go wrong there. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>